0: I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 15 of the, the East Nien podcast. Today I want to pay tribute to a man who was a legend in the publishing world. I'm talking about John Ferrone, Anais Nin's editor, Harcourt Brace Jobanovich, who died recently at the age of 91. Have you read Delta of Venus, Henry and June, Nien's early diaries? Then you've seen some of his handiwork. His name does not appear in any of these volumes, and sometimes other editors are credited. But if it weren't for his skills and vision, Neen's work may have never achieved the status it did in the 1970s and beyond. Because of my association with Ani East Neen, I was very fortunate to have made a connection with John. This is a story of how he helped me succeed at the most challenging project I'd ever undertaken to edit the first new Neen Diary in nearly 20 years. First, a little background. As some of you may know, Ani East Nien's agent, Gunther Stuhlman, was the editor of Ani East an international journal, for 19 years. After he passed away in 2002, I decided to keep the tradition of an annual Neen journal going and launched a cafe in space. Barbara Stuhlman, Gunther's wife, was kind enough to give me their mailing list, and John Farron was one of the names on it. I had no idea that he'd edited Neen's major works, nor that he was the editor of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. At the time, I only vaguely knew that he had something to do with Neen. For now, he was a customer, and a faithful one at that. Eventually, he wrote to me and asked if I'd be interested in an inside look at how he edited Henry and June. As I said, I hadn't even known that he was the editor of Henry and June. His name is not in the book. In fact, Rupert Paul, Neen's executor, is listed as editor. But I said, sure, please send the article along. When I read it, I was surprised to discover what a powerful force he was in Neen Publications. Henry and June was a groundbreaking book. It was the first of Neen's so-called unexpurgated diaries, the ones that concentrate on all the stuff left out of the originally published ones, in other words, the sex, the intimate life of Anna East Neen. The long-standing rumor that Neen and Henry Miller had been lovers was finally verified in full detail, and we were also made aware of the steamy relationship Neen had with Miller's wife, June. Called from the massive handwritten diary, the book reads like a novel and attracted many new fans and scandalized some old ones. It was made into a feature-length film by Philip Kaufman in 1990, the first ever rated NC-17. In ferrone's article, In a Cafe in Space, he details his monumental battles with Rupert Pohl about how the diary should appear. Pohl wanted Neen's words to be untouched, to be printed exactly as she wrote them. Ferron saw the potential for making the diary into a critical and commercial success. That was his job. He was, after all, the guy who edited 850 pages of raw erotica into two best-selling books, and nobody could argue with the results. John Ferron was a determined man, and hard-nosed when he had to be. Although he and Paul were friends, Ferron put business first. Again, the results bear proof that he was right in his approach, although there may be some purists who argue otherwise. John Farron met Annie East in 1969 when she stormed into his office at Harcourt demanding that a proposed cover photo for the paperback diaries be changed. She loathed the one that had been selected. When Ferone agreed with her, he instantly became a lifelong friend. And when Neen's previous editor, Hiram Hayden, died in 1973, Ferrone took over her work. It didn't take Neen long to recognize his formidable skills. In fact, she gave him the erotica with the following instructions. Do anything you like with it. I trust you. How many authors give their editors free rein? Ferrone said it was the first time for him. Delta of Venus was the result. Two years after Neen's death in 1977, Ferone did a second volume of Erotica, Little Birds, and then the Early Diaries, among other titles. In 1986, Pohl gave him Henry in June, and this would be perhaps his greatest achievement in Neen editing, especially in light of all the resistance by Pohl. I encourage you to read Ferone's article, in which their battle is written out in their correspondence. Trust me, It's epic. After Henry and June was published, Theron vowed to never go to war with Paul again. Even the thought of it was too much to bear. Perhaps this marked the beginning of the end of Nee's fortunes at Harcourt, because the next three unexpurgated diaries, Incest, Fire, and Nearer the Moon, edited by Paul and Stuhlman, saw such poor sales that when Paul sent Harcourt manuscripts for what would have been the next two volumes, he was refused. Harcourt never brought out another Neen diary. The two rejected manuscripts were tucked into boxes, and they sat collecting dust in Neen's old study at the Silver Lake House for nearly a decade. This is where I come in. In the mid-2000s, I was asked by Kazuko Sugasaki on the behalf of Rupert Pohl if I'd be interested in looking at the two diary manuscripts that had been wasting away in Neen's study. She'd been alerted to my interest in Neen and my involvement with a cafe in space, so she thought I might be the right person to edit the diaries. Now, if it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, let me say that I found out later that no one else wanted the job. I was probably at the bottom of a long list, or not on one at all. But, of course, I accepted the job without hesitation. I knew this was the opportunity of a lifetime. I was given two very heavy boxes containing the transcriptions of the diaries that Pohl and his colleagues had typed up many years before. One manuscript was called In Search of Lost Joy and covered 1939-43, to and the other was The Transparent Child, which covered 43 to 46. Together, they totaled over 1,300 typewritten pages. This was indeed a huge challenge, and I knew that I had undertaken an enormous responsibility. I never questioned whether I could do it or should do it. I just had to do it. I also knew that I would need guidance, feedback, criticism. My old mentor, Gunther Stullman was gone. To whom could I turn? The answer was obvious. John for Rome. I wrote to John, and he was immediately supportive. He gave me all sorts of advice, but I think the most important thing he said was, Be bold. Don't be afraid to move mountains. Don't be afraid that it's on the East needs writing. Make it better. Let her tell her story. This may be the best advice I've ever gotten from anybody about the editing process. John wasn't trying to get me to do things his way, but he was encouraging me to find my own way, to be myself while I edited, to own the process. I had read all of Neen's books, so I was well-versed in her style and themes. I was also aware that her own editing philosophy was to cut, 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 and not rewrite. Something I took to heart. John sent me some Xeroxes of his comments written on the pages of the unedited version of Henry and June. Entire sections were crossed out. Some were moved from one place to another. Words were changed, especially obscure and archaic ones, and there wasn't a single page that didn't have as many annotations as there was original text. To the untrained eye, This may have looked almost insane, or at least one might believe that Anise's writing would have been lost in the process, the thing that Paul feared most. But when one reads the published version of Henry and June, the beauty of Neen's writing shines, and the book, as I mentioned earlier, flows like a novel. No wonder Philip and Rose Kaufman made a movie out of it. Emboldened, I began to tackle the two towering manuscripts— as I read them, I realized they followed the unfortunate pattern of fire and nearer the moon. They were somewhat formless, meandering, with nuggets of genius and blockbuster passages here and there. But there was no story here, I thought. Or if there was, it was hidden behind a forest of words. I consulted John, and together we decided that I must find the thread of the story that ran throughout the pages, and to pare anything not related to it to boil it down to its essence, to enrich the text by eliminating anything that diluted it. Armed with this new philosophy, I was finally able to get down to editing. I now had a vision. I began to realize that the story of these two diary manuscripts was Neen's struggle, a mighty struggle, a battle against emptiness, frustration, and longing. It was about suffering and trying to rise above it, sometimes wildly, recklessly, Neen kept moving towards what she called mirages, falling in love with them, only to have them disappear. And it was an endless quest. She found no solace in either of the diaries, and the endlessness posed a huge problem for me as editor. There was a great beginning, which has Neen coming back to New York after World War II forced her to flee her beloved Paris, and there was plenty of great material about Neen's quest to get her work published and to find the perfect man, but there was no ending. John had warned me about Aniisa's tendency to contrive endings when she reached the final pages of a hardbound journal, and he told me I had to ignore these false endings and to find the natural one. There was no ending to In Search of Lost Joy. There was no ending to The Transparent Child, either. Had the story been terminated at either of these two points, there would have been a whole lot of frustrated readers. No one wants to be on an endless journey across a desert of pain. There has to be an oasis, a payoff. When did the pain end, John asked me. It was when Neen met Rupert Pohl. That was the natural ending. He enthusiastically agreed. Even though Neen didn't meet Pohl until March 1947, which meant hundreds of more diary pages added to the pile, it had to end there. So what I had to do was to take two gigantic manuscripts and a smaller one, too, and make them into one book. It was the only way it would work. I could only imagine what Rupert, now deceased, would have thought. At his invitation, I sent John a rough draft of my edits. I was at maybe 600 pages at that point. I held my breath for a response. Days passed. Weeks. I began to dread what I would hear from him about my preliminary edits. Finally, he called me. I thought, oh boy, this must be really bad if he's actually calling me. We talked for a long time. He gave me all sorts of criticism, all sorts of suggestions, all in the name of continuity, of storytelling. There is so much more that can be cut, he said. But let it sit for a while. Take some time off, and then pick it back up and read it anew. I'm sure these things will be clear then but he saved this for last. You know what you're doing. You know, Anais. Keep it up. You have no idea how much this encouraged me. Although I was chomping at the bit, I took John's advice and let the book sit for a while. Thank God I had no deadline. When I got back to it, I found he was right that all the flaws, the non-essentials, the confusions, the repetitions, stuck out like so many sore thumbs. It was as though I were reading with new eyes, more able eyes. The book took shape. It was a real book. It was a story. I began to seek a co-publisher who could help with distribution. This was a big deal. The first new Neen diary in 17 years. John and I kept up our correspondence and phone calls, sometimes discussing the diary, sometimes just chatting like old friends. In spite of his stature, there was a humbleness about him, a kindness, generosity. He was, to me, someone who glowed in the dark. While I continued refining the diary, now titled Mirages, John did a second article for a cafe in space, The Making of Delta of Venus, something I would encourage you all to read. It, like the Henry and June story, is fascinating and completely unknown to most Neen fans. John told me he was planning to collect his correspondence with Annie East Neen and give a healthy selection of it to a cafe in space, something I was very excited about. But then a lot of time went by and I didn't hear from him. I became concerned because when John Farone said he was going to do something, you could bet your last dime it would get done. So I called him, and that's when he told me he was suffering from Parkinson's disease. I was shocked. He had never mentioned it before, never complained about his health. But now the disease was becoming debilitating, he said. He would eventually leave his New York apartment and enter the Reformed church home in Old Bridge, New Jersey, close to his niece Kathy and nephew Walter, and where he was well cared for and still able to communicate with his friends via periodic emails. In the meantime, I struck a deal with Swallow Press to co-publish Mirages. I was delighted, and so was John. When the book came out, the reviews were excellent. One reviewer gave me perhaps the greatest compliment of all by saying, this book appears to not have been touched by the hands of an editor. One thing I made sure to do was to put John's name on the acknowledgments page. There is no way I could take all the credit for the editing job. I had tremendous and valuable help, and not just with Mirage's, but with everything since. His influence on me will never end. John was pleased with Mirage's. I told him that we were both in that book, which, of course, he dismissed. Although we weren't official partners, it was a collaboration for which I will be eternally grateful. He never called himself a mentor, but he certainly was one to me. And then, on April 10, 2016, John's niece sent an email that read, My Uncle John left this note for me to send to you. Kathy, you'll know when to send this. Unquote. Dear friends, it is time for me to let go of all the things I loved in life. Thank you for your friendship and your affection, which greatly brightened my 91 years. Remember me at my best. John For more information about John Ferron visit our blog at anaisneemblog.skybluepress.com. This has been the Ani Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.